Happy Mother's Day. If you're visiting on Mother's Day, uh, thank you. What a special time for us. My name is Peter, and I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs. More importantly, functionally, I serve on a team of elders that leads the church. The prettiest elders around, of course. Uh, happy Mother's Day again to the, uh, the moms in the house. My wife is in the back. Uh, she had, she's leading our kids' ministry and got to really see the, the kids uh, back there with all bunch of people that are not moms. This is one thing in our church that we have more kids' workers that are not parents than any church I've seen before. And that's one huge way that we're honoring our moms on Mother's Day and on all the other days in our church. And it's just a really special aspect about our church that I love. We're going to carry on in chapter 1 of Romans. Now, we've been going through the, the book of Romans to see the richness of the gospel. The gospel is transcendent to what we think is the gospel. You know, like when Nacho Libre says, they think I don't know a whole ton about the gospel and stuff, but I do. And the, the irony is we can laugh at Nacho but so, much, so many of us have that mindset. What keeps us from knowing so often is what we think we know. What keeps us from knowing the gospel, which we're going to see, is a lot more transcendently powerful than anything else that we can put our eyes on. What keeps us from knowing, being transformed by, united with, the power of God, often is what we think we know. Because we Googled a few things, Right? But the gospel is so much greater than that. And the gospel is for the people who think they know it and don't. The people who know it and do but need to know it more and be founded deeper in it and see more power hinge off of our lives. And the gospel is for those who don't have any interest right now. But it's kind of like the story of my life and yours. God didn't wait for me to have interest in him before he took an interest in bringing the gospel to me. So we're going to stay in, God, in the, the first chapter of Romans 1. And last week, Alberto did a fine job preaching cha, uh, verse 1 chapters, chapter 1, verses 15 and, and 16 and 17. I'm going to stick with verse 15. I feel like this is a, a special word I have for today that's going to help us to really hinge off of what God's doing on a day that, in the United States where we celebrate thankfully, a day like Mother's Day, and helps us to understand how God is leading us in the gospel forward. So if you would stand to your feet to honor God's word, I'm going to read verse 15 of chapter 1. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God For the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would add to the reading of your word a special blessing. That's beyond our understanding and what we know and what we think we know and everything in between. Help us to see with greater context 
what your gospel has always been and how it's confronting me where I am and how you've desired for me to walk in the power of it in my culture today. Amen. I have one big idea that I want to share with you today that I see from verse 15 here, and that is this. Verse 16, thank you. The gospel always enacts a power confrontation between the ways of man and the kingdom of God. The gospel always enacts a power confrontation between the ways of man and the kingdom of God. Many of us don't like the word confrontation, but it's like many words in the Bible that when we try to water down and try to pick another word, it's not quite accurate enough to enact the type of exchange that only the gospel can enact. And the gospel is at least a confrontation. I think of the, the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, which was a prefiguring, a foreshadowing of the gospel. The whole nation of Israel had been drawn away to seek other gods, to, to find pleasure in their own ways of going about seeking after God. It was the ancient equivalent of you do you. They were just, they were just trying to seek God. And in the meantime, people were dying as a result and being led away and abused just because they were trying to do what was right in their own eyes. They were trying to seek after God and they were running after the Baals, false idols and false gods. And there was a confrontation that had to take place between the ways of man and the kingdom of God. And some of you know the story, and so I'll just tell it in a, a small way. And some of y'all that don't know the story, you're going to go back and be like, wow, the, the Bible really does all this stuff? Yes, go read the Bible. It's way cooler than any Netflix thing, okay? Elijah, one of the prophets, one of the remnants, goes and confronts the nation of Israel who had hundreds and hundreds of prophets of Baal that were leading the nation to rejecting God. And he had a confrontation on Mount Carmel. And he said, we're going to put a sacrifice, an animal, and and kill it and see which of our gods can light this sacrifice on fire. You're, You're going to go first, and then I'll go next. So hundreds of these prophets of Baal started dancing around and performing their rituals to see if their ways of getting to supernatural power, the ways of man in their own eyes could light this fire, this sacrifice, could appease the gods in essence. They danced around for hours and hours and hours on the same day, even started cutting themselves to try to appease the gods and curry his power, and nothing happened. Elijah even started to taunt him, which is kind of redemptive for me. I'm like, okay, well, there's taunting in the Bible. That can be redemptive. Still don't know if that's really the case, but that's what Elijah was doing. He was taunting these guys. Where, where are your gods? Maybe they went to go, go to the bathroom or something. Who knows? Nothing happened. So they gave up. And then it was Elijah's turn. Now check out the difference. Do you know what Elijah did? This is important. It's kind of a trick question. Elijah essentially did nothing. 
but he prayed. In fact, just to show that anything that Elijah could do was inadequate, he had them first put a whole bunch of water over the sacrifice just to show that there's nothing in my power that I can do to enact the power of God. And in this confrontation, God showed up. When Elijah did nothing but pray, God came to him. And so I say, the gospel always enacts a power confrontation between the ways of man and the kingdom of God. And it's this. This wasn't one man's religion versus another man's religion. The confrontation on Mount Carmel. This was men trying to get to God and failing versus God faithfully coming to one of his people that prayed. And this is, I say, a foreshadowing of the gospel. Because check out verse 16 again. I, Paul says, am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of, from, God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and then also the Greek. Now, we're going to unpack why that's important as it related to the ways of man with two main cultures that were in the church in Rome why the ways of man trying to get to God is the opposite of the gospel and God coming and confronting particular things in this culture is what his power alone can do. Now, again with this word confrontation, there's nothing wrong with confrontation. It's hateful confrontation that's the problem. My mother-in-law, I'm going to pick on her for a minute, is one of the most loving people I know. I'm sorry that you don't have a mother-in-law like I have. Maybe God knew I needed a little extra love. She's one of the most loving people I know. But man, she knows how to confront things directly with righteousness and love. And there is a consistent regard of fear among the grandchildren for Oma. You don't mess with Oma. In fact, one time, one of my kids started confronting Oma. This is my Alma, Alma versus Oma. It was kind of a, a tongue twister. And when she was two, she, she stood up to Oma on the face. And three of us from my generation kind of backed away like, oh, no. Like, this is not good. There is no love without confrontation, without holy confrontation. Try to have a real relationship, whether it's marriage or anything else, without confronting real issues to the degree of discomfort arising. You cannot be loving and honest and pure without confrontation. And the gospel always enacts a power confrontation between the ways of God, the ways of man, and the kingdom of God. One of the most loving things that's ever happened to me was about two years after I became a Christian, and a man who has, was in my high school, he was, we were the same year in high school. He's just died this last year. Um, but that year, 20 years ago, 19 years ago, I was slowly starting to stray away from the things of God. And it was my own ways. You know, when I started to compromise my faith in high school, two years after receiving Jesus, here's what I thought in my mind. I thought, 
you know, there's so many people out there, like on my baseball team, that don't know the gospel. And so I just need to spend a little more time with them because what they need more than anything else is me. I thought, okay, they just need a little bit more of me in their life. It was really humble, you see, because I was going to go and just love on them. And what I started to see is I wasn't influencing them. They were influencing me. And we know the story. Many of us have lived it. Many of us are living it right now, FYI. And God's coming to confront us right now. But this was me. And you know what happened? I went to a men's group, and I kind of gave one of those soft lobs of confession. You know, like you've, many of y'all have been here before. Hey, all these men are going in front of me, and they're confessing real things. And so here's what I say in the, in the Bible study. I'm like, you know, I just have some struggles. And I just left it ambiguous like that. Just some struggles. And my friend Ken did not let me off the hook. He said, you don't just have some struggles. You're sinning against God, and you're pulling people to hell. Man, dude, that kind of hurt my feelings. The most loving thing for my life, for my future wife, and for my future children, was for me to be directly, lovingly, harshly confronted. It was the gospel. Jesus was saying to me through Ken, I haven't given up on you, although you've given up on me and all your self-deception. I'm still for you, even though you're not for me anymore. And I love you so much, or I'm going to use Ken to draw you back to me. And Ken didn't let me off the hook. I thought he would get nicer from there. But I had a lot of sanctified discomfort in the following few hours and days. The gospel always enacts a power confrontation between the ways of man and the kingdom of God. Paul says, I am not ashamed He said this after at least two decades of being confronted with false gospels within the church and without the church, among Jews and Gentiles, being confronted with false gospels and having to see God's power show itself to redeem whose gospel was right. And Paul knew, I am not ashamed of the gospel Paul had seen how the ways of man within Jewish culture and the ways of man within Gentile culture had come against the kingdom of God. And I'm saying here today, church, that there are certain ways within our cultures, our thinking, that the most loving thing God can do today is to directly confront us with his power and with his love and to shred our resistance into nothing. He says it's the power of God unto all who believe. The gospel is not from you and it's not from your effort and it's not from your best ability to try to be faithful within the church. The gospel is the power from God. It, it's the kingdom of God, the power of God getting into my resistance into my habits, into my patterns, and coming against those things for the sake of my heart. First thing that Paul says is it's the power of God to the salvation. All believe, he says, two categories. First, the Jew, and also the Greek, or some translations say Gentiles. I want to point out a few particular things within these cultures, Jew and Gentile, 
that would cause Paul, contextually in this, in this book, cause Paul shame that he had to shake off. Things that, shame that he was confronting with the gospel that he had to overcome within his cultures. The first was within Jewish culture, the mindset that the gospel is something that I perform to get to God versus the gospel is something that Jesus performed, past tense, to make me right with him. Sometimes I hear people sharing their stories and it kind of there's no, you know, there's the story of how they became a Christian, which is a follower of Jesus. And I hear them talking about why they follow Jesus, but there's no Jesus in the story. It's, I hear things like, oh, well, I, I got right with God. Okay, well, that's okay if we say things wrong. That's okay, but I want to hear more. And, I, you know, I turned over a new leaf and I made myself right. But I don't want to just harp on, you know, the way people say things semantically. God knows we don't need any more of those guys, right? But we need to clarify that none of us can make ourselves right with God. This is one of the Jewish mindsets that Paul was confronting. It's the same conservative mindset that has a a nasty remnant within our culture. We say something about bootstraps, I think. I forgot where the reference was from. But we cannot pull ourselves up to God. Every false religion in history is essentially this. No matter how many times you, you, you tried to do your pilgrimage to some place or pray to in a certain direction or stand up, sit down, fight, 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 every religion in history is essentially this. It's essentially man trying his best to get to God, to find oneness, to, to break through to a state of nirvana, to go to church on Sundays and Wednesdays, Whatever it is, every false religion in history, no matter what ism by which it is called, it is man's attempt to get to God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is categorically different in that it is God's success in coming to a people, in seeking out a people that were never seeking him. And this shows itself in my own story. I grew up kind of like a, a, a Catholic that was always driven to kind of seek after God just enough to, to cancel my feeling of guilt, right? And I just wanted to go to church enough just to make myself feel better for the things that I had no intention nor power of changing. No, if, I, if, it, if it was strong enough to make me feel bad, I needed to go to church and maybe even light one of the votive candles in the offertorio to the right, if any of y'all know where that is in the Catholic church. Because I did that, and I was going to do my thing to get to God. I mean, I was a good person, essentially, right? This is what we're taught in our culture. And here's the convenience of our culture's lie. We allow ourselves to define what good means. How convenient. And I was a good person, but when I felt bad, which was not quite often, I tried to get to God. I thought the people who kind of stayed in that place always were kind of trying to follow the rules. I thought those people were just like, you know, they were just bored, right? They didn't have anything better to do because they weren't as cool as me. They weren't invited to the parties that I was invited to, right? I just thought those people just had nothing better to do. Maybe they're just too boring. They're, you know, they're not cool. They don't talk right. They're, they're ugly or something. I just thought, you know, 
they're just religious people. And then I was invited to a Bible study in high school, a campus ministry, a student-led thing. I went after a few weeks, not because I wanted to go, but because I wanted Josh to stop inviting me. And so I figured if I could check this off my list, tell him that, dude, I went to your Bible study thing, now leave me the heck alone, that I'd done my deed, right, to get to God. And this is the pain of the gospel. With the power confrontation of the gospel, here's what happens, is when the gospel is preached in all of its wholeness, you're not just getting those good fuzzy thoughts. There's some really strange redemptive pain in the peace that only God can bring you. And so that first week, I needed it. I got this weird peace, and I didn't like any of it. I'm hearing about sin because I'm hearing finally something rightly diagnosed that I had been misdiagnosing all my life. One of the things I love about the the Bible is that the Bible can so accurately tell me what's wrong with me and how it can be made right. So I went back the next week on September 17th, 1997. And I went back and I heard the gospel preached that Jesus died for my sin, not only so that I could be forgiven for the things that I thought I could cancel with the offertory votive candles, but also so that I could live a new life, a new adventure, new joy, new power way better than all my sin, and no headaches the next day. And I received Jesus, who is the essence of the gospel, this transcendent person who carries me in my difficulty, who who sought me out when I wasn't seeking him, and flipped the switch on and said, be alive, be born again, be mine And from that point onward, who I am is one word, his. Who I am is who he says I am. And that statement in our culture today comes with all sorts of power confrontation that we have to come against all the other false identities that God confronts in our culture today. Who I am is is who he says I am. So when Paul said, I have no shame of the gospel, it's the power from God, not the power of man to get to God, but the power of God for the salvation to all who believe, he's coming directly in confrontation with the Jewish mindset, the 1997 Catholic mindset, perhaps the 2019 performance mindset that's been enslaving you, that you think you need to get to God and you need to come to church and beat yourself down when you're not doing very good with it. I'm telling you, no, you can never do it. You're more sinful than you even understand, but you're way more loved than you can ever imagine. You don't have the capacity to grasp how much God loves you. His gospel came to you. Jesus lived the perfect life that you should have lived. And he earned this perfect eternity with his father that the confirmation of what he always was, he was confirmed to be perfect. And he could have just ascended into heaven. 
But he made a decision, and he had a power confrontation of his own. On a night before he went to the cross, he, he was sweating blood as he was facing his own power confrontation, where he decided, I'm going to die the death that they should have died. Instead of receiving the life that I deserve for the perfect life I live, I'm going to die for a new exchange so that they can have new life. And Jesus died the death that we should have died in our place. And then he rose again from the dead. In this next part of our story about how he rose from the dead and how we know this in the gospel and how this spread was another layer of scandal that confronted the Apostle Paul. The next layer I'm gonna, we're going to see here, the last layer, is how the ways of man in regards to how they understood the place of women in their culture paints a color to our gospel story that is just a perfect redemptive scandal for all of history. This is one thing that the, the Jews of the day struggled with. The story of how women were in this story with Jesus confirming that he has really risen. It was, it was something that Jewish men were struggling with and Gentile men alike. Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. We, we covered a few weeks ago that there was already cultural clashes between Jew and Gentile. But Paul was also writing this letter to a bunch of people who were also struggling with the gender issues with women having prominence in the, the preaching and the spreading of the gospel. Let me remind you that if it's hard for us to think about now, imagine the confrontation in first century patriarchal society. Of Jesus, he could have descended kind of like angels descended in the Old Testament, but he chose instead to what we say in our our confession, he was begotten, not made. He was not created, but he was born of a woman, and he lived a perfect life. He was born of a woman, conceived of the Holy Spirit, and he lived a perfect life. Women bore witness to the gospel. Jesus' mission for three years was financed primarily by women. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, the very first witnesses of this resurrection, Paul says, without the resurrection of the dead, our faith is futile. Women were the first witnesses. You know, in the first century, a woman's testimony was not admissible in the court of law. And yet that part of our story was never covered up or suppressed. There's a few prostitutes in the history, lineage, and even genealogy of Jesus. In fact, it's my story is found, and your story is found in the understanding of who we are in them. Jesus said of one of the prostitute, prostitutes that made a, her own sort of power confrontation before Jewish elders, she comes and washes Jesus' feet with her tears and, and dries them with her hair. And in this awkward moment, Jesus says, he was forgiven much, loves much. And right there in that statement, I see part of the energy of my life. I don't live for God. I live from the forgiveness that I've been given. That's what the gospel is. 
And the way that Jesus uses women in confronting cultures in ancient days and even redeeming our understanding of the gospel today is just astounding. In Romans chapter 1, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. I'm going to just point out a few people that he's writing this to. If you flip to chapter 16, this is amazing when you look at it. All the women in chapter 16, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a deacon of the Lord. We know that Phoebe was an evangelist as well that spread the gospel of Jesus. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, verse 3 says, for my work in Jesus. This gospel that he was not ashamed with was continuing to confront culture and how Jesus used women who were at the time by all cultures being suppressed. And Jesus said, I can do with those who are suppressed what the strongest of men could not do on their own. And he advances the gospel. He speaks of Junia in verse 7. Verse 13 of chapter 16 of Romans. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, small side note. If you're a mother biologically in here and God has used you for the advancement of the gospel by way of nurturing within the family of God, God bless you. But you can see here from verse 13 that you don't have to be a mother biologically to be a mother spiritually and to advance the kingdom of God, to make an exchange of your ways for the kingdom of God. God wants to use you to advance the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are ready to be used of God. Who can receive the power of God where they are, confronting your own power, and then be vessels of it. When you consider the gospel and the shame that Paul was confronting in cultures and how we viewed different Men in different cultures and in different genders, men versus women, and how the gospel of Jesus Christ completely weighs down on those things and spreads with a miraculous power that only can be attributed to Jesus is really risen from the dead. We have to ask two things. Number one, what particular shame in your life is God wanting to confront today? And number two, Are you willing for him to enact a power confrontation right now so that you can be better used of him? I want to ask you, as we consider going on, we're going to continue to move on next week in Romans 1 to some of the most heavy topics in all of Scripture, especially in our culture today. I want to invite you to first this week consider what is Jesus confronting in your life? Maybe it's bad habits that you know are bad in your life that he's confronting. And he's telling you, you need to surrender those to me. Maybe it's good habits. Maybe it's things that you do well that you think are in and of themselves pleasing to God. That they'll get you to God. And God is wanting to confront those things and say, no, 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 no. For the joy set before me, I endured the cross because those things that you do could never get you to me. 
And I scorned the shame of the cross so that you could be one with me. So what things, maybe things that you know are drawing you away from God, or things that you think are drawing you near to God in your own power, what things that act as shame against the gospel of Jesus Christ is God wanting to confront in your heart right now? Would you pray with me?